You're listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter, where we're overcoming trials with triumphs. Now, here's your host, Patty Catter. Hello, everybody. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter. Today, I have Marine Corps veteran Stuart Scheller on the show with me this morning. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for being on my show. I've been following you for a while, and um, I can say I am... I stand behind you. Um, that's not a secret. And I want you to go ahead and just tell our listeners, first of all, a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and then we're going to get into your story a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. I'm middle America guy. I grew up, I was born in Illinois. My dad was in the health insurance industry. So we moved around the Midwest a lot. So I've lived in Kansas, Illinois, Missouri, and we ended it in Ohio. So from about seventh grade on, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, was always an athlete, played soccer and baseball my whole life, was a high school soccer and college soccer player. So went to high school in Cincinnati, started my college career down at a place called Cumberland College. It's in Eastern Kentucky. I played two seasons of soccer there, and then I transferred back to the University of Cincinnati, and I graduated there with a degree in accounting. Wow. So what made you decide to join the the Marine Corps, like the hardest branch in the military is what I hear. <laughs> yeah, that's what I had in my mind too, is the Marine Corps was one of the better services. And so when I was working as an accountant, I didn't find a lot of fulfillment in it. I did it because I thought I was going to be an FBI agent and I was mentored that getting a CPA was a good way to do that. But ultimately, while I was working as an accountant post-college, there was a war going on. And I've always played in competitive sports, and I've always liked being on a team. And, and I love America, and I wanted the opportunity to serve, and so that's what I did. And I joined probably about nine months after graduating college and uh, started my career as a Marine Corps infantry officer. So did you go to normal boot camp? So officers have a different uh, pipeline. So they have what's called officer candidate school. And so you, you can commission through a service academy. So you can go through the Naval Academy or, or West Point and then go into the Marine Corps officer pipeline that way. But 90% of us go through officer candidate school. And then for me, I went through the 10 week program. So after college, if you don't do ROTC or some other program that prepares you, you just do a 10 week straight boot camp-ish type thing where they screen officers for potential. And then if you get through that, you commission into the Marine Corps and that's the route I took. Okay. All right. I never really thought about that part too much. Um, so tell me once you were in the, in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. um, what happened? Like, where did you go? What, what are some of the things that you did? So I went through the officer training pipeline in the year of 2005. So I went through officer candidate school, then I followed with the basic school. So officer candidate school was January to March of 05. The basic school was April to September 05. And then I became selected for infantry. So I went to infantry officer course, excuse me, which is my MOS school from September to December 05. And so from January 05, when I joined, it took me about 11 months, which was pretty quick because not many people go through it that fast. Usually there's bigger breaks between the schools. And within 11 months, I was standing in front of my platoon in the unit 18 in Camp Lejeune. And uh, so my first deployment was um, June to December 06. And then my second deployment to 
so the first deployment was a Marine Expeditionary Unit, and we did a non-combatant evacuation in Lebanon. We took American citizens out when they were in a conflict with Israel. And then my second deployment in September to April, so September 06 to April 07 was Ramadi, Iraq. I was a company XO at that point. And then I went to School of Infantry as a company commander for two years. And then I went to Afghanistan for a year as a counter IED team leader. And then went to some more school, got out. Uh, I came back down to Camp Lejeune in a unit called 3-2, was a company commander for two tours, did two more deployments. Then as a major, I went to the basic school for three years, did more school. Then I went to MARSOC for a year. And then I went, was a regimental operations officer. And then I became the battalion commander of advanced infantry training battalion. So 17 years in the infantry. So you knew what you were doing, obviously. I have a lot of experiences. Um, most of my time has been in the infantry, MARSOC included in that, or teaching. So I taught at the School of Infantry. I taught at the basic school. I even spent a summer at Officer Canada School as a, as a platoon commander. So all of those schools fall under a, the command called Training Command. And so most people do different things, but I spent all my time either teaching infantry or practicing it. And so, yes, in terms of infantry knowledge, I was very uh, in tune with what was going on for the last 17 years. Mm -hmm. Now, me as a civilian who I hardly ever watch the news, I, I have a hard time with mainstream media. I feel like it gets twisted often. And so one of the things I love about podcasting is it, is, it allows me to share um, your story from your mouth and not edit it out. Um, so one of the things that um, you're well known for is speaking out, in my opinion, what I gather is speaking out against how the, um, I don't know what you would call it, extraction or how we left Afghanistan. Um, is that the correct terminology here? Correct. Um, so it started as a withdrawal and it quickly turned into an evacuation. And so those are actually two different military operations. And the reason it turned into an evacuation is because the withdrawal was so poorly planned. Um, so, yes, th those two different types of operations are what were executed from April through the end of August, September-ish of uh, 21. Mm -hmm. So I know, like I said, I don't watch the news a lot, but you couldn't help it. On Facebook, it was everywhere. On every every social media platform, anytime you're online on and any kind of network, um, I'm seeing pictures of people being, uh, of our soldiers being evacuated from Afghanistan and um, watching, I try not to get too emotional, but watching the Afghanistan people, the people there um, just devastated from what I could see. Um, nobody knew what was really going on. It looked like a complete circus over there. And then some of our soldiers and our military were killed because of what I think is the very, very poor planning, to be quite honest, but that's just what I could see. So I don't know what your story is, but I would really like you to share that with us. Yeah, so as I've sat here and reflected on it, but up, up front, it was very poorly executed. And I don't know if it's just gonna take people time to realize that, but I realized it immediately. Like I said, I spent a year in Afghanistan. I'm very familiar with how the Taliban operate. And I'm very familiar with how our planning process from the tactical through the four-star 
combatant command operational level up to the National Security Council strategic level work. So I also have an education that combined with my experiences provided an insight that not everybody has. And so the way it worked, the previous president signed a conditional agreement to be out of Afghanistan in the May timeframe of 21. The Taliban did not come to the conditions of that agreement. So you could argue that the agreement was null and void. But President Biden still is saying, hey, that that agreement is what drove a lot of the planning. I, I upfront disagree with that logic. But regardless, he made the decision that I want to withdraw all troops. He extended the withdrawal from May to September 11th, which obviously he didn't pick that date out of a hat, right? So September 11th. And what he did was he basically said, we're going to withdraw all troops from April to September 11th. And just up front, anyone that knows anything about Afghanistan knows that the Taliban don't fight in the winter. They go into the mountains of Pakistan and they hide. So we literally planned our withdrawal during the peak fighting season, which just up front is terrible planning in itself. But that's what we decided to do. So once he gives the order, hey, in April, General McKenzie is the guy in charge of the, the Marine planning. So it goes from the president to the secretary of defense to the combatant commander, which is General McKenzie. And so they say, start developing plans for how you're going to execute what the president just ordered. So then General McKenzie goes to his operational planners and they develop a bunch of courses of action. They go back to the secretary of defense and the National Security Council and they say, these are our proposals. Most of them had to do with leaving Bagram Air Base, which is the key piece of terrain you needed to maintain to conduct a withdrawal. Even if you go back and look at President Trump's plan, the last thing in that plan was we evacuate Bagram Air Base. But based on wanting to get the troops out faster, the National Security Council shut, shot down the plans, mostly because they wanted troops out at a much quicker pace to be on point to have them out by September 11th. So at that critical moment, the military planners ultimately failed to convince the National Security Council and the president on the utility of maintaining Bagram Air Base and maintaining more troops so that you could have the troops be the last people that come out. So you should get all the American citizens and the equipment out first, which is just common sense, and then draw down the troops. And so the military advisors failed to convince the National Security Council and the president on that. So then at that point, my position has been General McKenzie should have publicly resigned. There's historical examples of this. There was a General Singlov in Carter's administration that Carter was making some decisions on Korea. Singlov tried to convince Carter privately. He couldn't. And then he went public with it and applied pressure and was actually very effective in doing that. General McKenzie decided, I'm going to take the restraints that the president gave me and I'm going to try and execute this plan anyway. And based on the restraints, made the decision to just abandon Bagram Air Base did it without even telling our partners, left prisoners still in their cells, prisoners that were later released by the Taliban, that there's some reports that those prisoners then were the ones that attacked us. Maybe even one of the suicide vest um, people came from that prison that we just left in Bagram, right? And we left a bunch of equipment. So General McKenzie wildly underestimates the ability of the Taliban to advance. He puts himself in a position where he's at a Kabul airfield, and he has to rely on the Taliban for external security. Obviously, that doesn't work out. We get people killed. We leave in a hurry. And General McKenzie even acknowledges he left hundreds of Americans, hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment. Turns out it was more like thousands of Americans. But he states 
that it was the end of the DOD mission and that he was capable of doing that because he could turn over the plan to the Department of State. And then Secretary of State Blinken shows up to Congress two weeks later and by his own admission states, well, I didn't inherit any plan. And I wasn't prepared for this. Right. So just complete breakdowns in every facet of this plan. And, you know, oh, by the way, after the preventable attack, we conduct a drone strike and kill nothing but civilians and children um, that were carrying water in a humanitarian fashion. Like there is just no better historical example of breakdowns. And then when the generals finally testified and, and General McKenzie and the Secretary of Defense had to go talk to Congress, they deflected accountability by saying, well, no, we told the National Security Council and the president, you know, we gave them those other options and they didn't take it. And to me, that logic is just flawed fundamentally because they didn't resign and they accepted the restraints on the plan and they're the senior military planners. So when this thing was executed as poorly as it was, they should raise their hand and say, yes, we are accountable. We messed this up and, and no one's done that. And so when I made my first video, I stated just that, like nobody has raised their hand and acknowledged we messed this up and I demand accountability. I had the foresight, you know, the day the attack happened to know that it was going to play out in this manner. And it has unfortunately played out in this manner. And I just think, you know, you can't bring people back from the ones that were attacked but we can prevent things like this from happening again. And it starts with holding senior leaders accountable. How did you feel when you put that video out as far as you probably knew there was going to be backlash? You probably knew that, I mean, come on. I know, I know Marines who were in trouble for much less things and they were blackballed or blacklisted, um, you know, kicked out, um, treated poorly. So you must've been, I don't want to use the word nervous because I don't feel like you're a nervous type, but you must have been a little bit thinking like, okay, what am I going to do? Because here I have a family to provide for. Do I bend to this peer pressure basically is what was happening and not say anything, or do I just go forward and do the right thing and make it public? I was terrified. It was not something I did lightly. And even after I made the video, it wasn't something I posted right away. I sat there and thought about it and thought about it. But there just wasn't anything more important. I spent my whole life doing this. And, you know, you look at our obligation as military officers to the junior service member and to the American people. And I just felt like there was nothing more important. And this was my life's work. And this is my life's purpose. And making I'm not doing this because I'm angry at the military. I want to make the military better. I believe in the American military and the power that it provides the American people in terms of national power, sources of power, we have to do better. And currently we still haven't fixed some of the fundamental problems. And the, the trap we're going to fall into is because we showed such vulnerabilities. There's going to be, there's going to be problems in Ukraine. There's going to be problems in Taiwan. And my concern is we're going to allow those things to distract ourselves. Obviously we have to focus on them, but we can't allow it to not also address the systemic failures that are plaguing the military system. And I think that's kind of our problem. We've been so busy. We're just always so go, go, go that we never provide the actual introspection in a timely manner to make the changes, i.e. General McKenzie, the CENTCOM combatant commander is doing a change of command this spring because of all the other things going on in the world. He's probably going to have a great big change of command and have this great, you did a great job, honorable retirement. When quite honestly, if we could have this tough conversation, he should be held accountable before he exits the door. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of other Marines or any kind of military personnel from whatever branch of service um, are nervous to do the right thing. They're afraid to do the right thing because, I mean, come on, you know, you have um, somebody at the top who can basically put you in the brig, which is what happened to you, right? That's right. My situation, after I posted that first video, it became a series of escalating events. And in the military's defense, I, I continue to break the rules despite their warnings. But the reason I kept breaking the rules is because they weren't acknowledging the statements that I was making. And that's what I was looking for was acknowledgement and a conversation and acceptance of accountability. And I wasn't getting that. And so I wouldn't allow myself to be silenced. And so mm -hmm. it ended with me and the brig. Um, how did you feel about that? Did you know it was coming or? I anticipated that they would try and do it based on the legal orders. I didn't think they had the legal right to do it. They made, they lied on some documents and said things like I was a flight risk and, and exaggerated the threat to justify my imprisonment. But um, I knew that they would probably disproportionately react, which is why I kind of kept coming at them uh, to continue to illustrate the hypocrisy of the system. Mm -hmm. And I know some, some things that I read online were kind of funny to me. Like one of them, um, somebody in the military and the, in the Marine Corps said that they thought that you finally broke, you had PTSD and this is why you're doing this. And I had my own personal feelings about that, which I, I won't go into great detail other than that just kind of verified that I wanted to be more on your side because I knew you weren't crazy. I know you, you weren't doing those things to get attention. You, yeah. you wouldn't want that kind of attention, right? <laughs> Thank you. I, the crazy angle was so frustrating. I mean, not just PTSD. People were calling me schizophrenic. People were calling me bipolar. I mean, every mental thing that could be wrong with a person was levied against me, not just in the media. Like these, these comments were made in the media, but they were also made in my investigation on formal statements. I mean, every, and I got mental health of that. They forced me to get a mental health evaluation, like command ordered it. Um, they were making the, the Marine Corps was making PR statements. They were releasing documents to try and have other articles paint me as crazy. And so, you know, it's very hard one to make an argument against being crazy. Cause if you're crazy, anything you said is crazy. So it's marginalized. <laughs> and two, when you're on a gag order, you can't even defend yourself. So everyone can call you crazy. And if you say anything, you go to jail. So it was a very hard time in my life, but like you said, Patty, I knew who I was. I knew what I believed in and I knew I was stronger than they gave me credit for. And I wasn't going to back down because I truly believed in what I said. And I'm still standing here. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is other Marines can be bent and they can be intimidated. And if somebody were calling me crazy and, and throwing all these names at me and then putting me in the media, I don't know if I would be as strong as you. And I know at one time we were talking with some of our Marine friends and everybody's like, man, he has, excuse the language, but this is Marine talk. Um, he has some balls <laughs> because, um, you know, he's continuing to do the right thing. And just because you're asking for accountability from your, your superiors, I mean, to me, I think it needs to be done more often. It's not done enough. And so I, I personally... Thank you. And, um, you know, so when you found out that you were in the, or you were going to the brig, 
what were some of the thoughts that you had or what did you think? Like, how am I going to get out of here? Or how long am I going to be in here? What were your thoughts? Well, the first thing, my first thought, I, I intentionally made a post and violated the gag order to get into jail, to put them in a position where they could send me to jail one day before the general's testimony to Congress. So my first thought was, this is going to be good for the attention of the matter at hand, because now these generals are going to have to answer questions about why I'm in the break. And they did like Senator Cotton was asking the secretary of defense about me. Some of the congressional representatives were asking questions about me. And so in a, in a way I got what I wanted. My second thought was I'm not going to bring my phone to work because I don't want them going through my phone, but I still like wiped a lot of things off my phone just because I thought that they might try and figure out a way to get it. Um, but they didn't. Um, and then my third thought was, I just need to make sure that people know that I'm in here. So I was able to call my parents and I just told them like very, very basic things. I said, call my lawyer, tell everybody that I'm in here and I'm fine. And so once I got the message out, once I knew that the generals were going to have to answer questions and then at that point, it was just a waiting game to see what happened. And, and I really wasn't afraid of being in jail. And quite honestly, it didn't, wasn't as scary as some people might think, you know, I had a solitary cell and got the opportunity to read and write. They fed me pretty well. And I, I wasn't worried about it. Mm -hmm. Good. I was going to ask you about that next. Um, so when you finally, you, you obtained a lawyer and all that stuff. And we have a lot of people who've been supporting you. I know we supported you um, financially and I'm still really thankful I did that. Um, and I'm wondering what is, what was next for you after getting out of the brig? And were you, I mean, you're just worried about, um, and I hate using these terms that I feel like are weak for you because you're not weak, but were you worried about, um, what was going to be happening next, how you were going to get out of the military? Were you getting an honorable discharge? How, you know, what were all, I mean, what was that like? Right. When I got out of the brig, I was very upset because that's when they released the investigation in the media. And there was these articles that came out, one of them called compared me to Hitler. I mean, and I was just so hurt by that because I had, served my country for 17 years. And I, here I thought I was doing something honorable and I would, and it just, the attacks didn't stop. And again, I couldn't speak and I was just so angry. So my, my emotion was really just anger and hurt. And I was trying to manage that and stay on point and not let that dictate some of my actions. And then the other part was I, I was pleading guilty to show my senior leaders what accountability looked like because I felt like I would marginalize my message if I pled not guilty and tried to beat the charges on legal grounds. But I was also worried that, you know, hey, if I'm pleading guilty, are they just going to write me off as some guy that is guilty of things and not listen to my message? So the whole, the whole time, I'm just I'm angry at what they're doing to me, not acknowledging my content of my statements. And so um, it was less, you know, I'm afraid and more just frustration. I can definitely see that. How, um, how is your family? It seems like they're really supportive of you. Mom and dad uh, stepped up in a big way and helped me out a lot. Um, I went through a real hard time with my wife because I made a lot of these statements, not talking to her about it. And so hurt her pretty bad. And that was tough for both of us. And so we're actually going through a divorce, um, but it's been, 
you know, I don't have anything bad to say about her. She's been with me for 17 years, mother of my children, like still have a lot of love for her and we're very amicable, but yeah, th- this whole ordeal has come at a, a cost to my family. Um, but at the same time, like my, my siblings and my parents have stood with me and you, you really through situations like this, find out who's got your back and who doesn't. And so in a lot of ways it's been eye opening, but it's been, it's been challenging. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I know me as a parent, I would be really proud of my kids for doing the right thing, even if it's difficult, you know? Um, So I can't even imagine how proud they are of you, really. Um, I think that a lot of our listeners are going to want to continue to follow you to see what's next. Do you have any plans? Well, if you're interested in everything that I stand for, what's next, my website is authentic americans.com. And so I have a lot of my political views and I put documents and we have a forum and then we have ways you can donate all through that website. So that's, we also have a a newsletter. So authenticamericans.com is my brand. And then I've also started a coalition of congressional candidates that I, I plan to support through the 22 election cycle. The, The bumper sticker there is I think we need leaders, not politicians. And so I understand our politicians, our representatives are not necessarily leaders, but at the same time, I think they need some leadership qualities in order, in order to stand up for the things that the American people deserve. So going forward right now, I'm doing a lot of media just to set the record straight because I couldn't for so long with my gag order in terms of my journey. But come th- this little media spurt that I'm doing now is really going to wrap up here in the middle of February. And then I plan on jumping on the campaign trail with all my Senate and uh, Congress or uh, House candidates and and getting people in the offices where they need to be. That's exciting because really that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So um, do you have anything else that you would like to add? I really appreciate your authenticity and just sharing from your heart. I, I really appreciate that. And I know that a lot of my listeners are going to love this episode and love finally hearing your side of the story. I think I just, if one thing I could add is, you know, there's been so many different arguments against me and so many people wanted to believe something else other than I'm just a principled person standing up for what I believe in. It was easier to believe in all these other things, but the one argument that's really bothered me is that most people believe that I can't make change and they just keep saying, this is the way it is. You can't do anything about it. This is the way it is. If people truly fundamentally believe that you can't make change, then quite honestly, we just fundamentally philosophically disagree. I do believe we can make change. I believe that the power of the government comes from the people and I plan on making change. So that's my thing with the military. A lot of people said the same thing. You can't change it. That's the way it is. I disagree. And I have beliefs and I plan to influence the systems that make our Republic great uh, by getting a following because I believe there's more of us than there are of them. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Um, Those of you who know my story remember uh, me talking about a lieutenant colonel who told me I was just a family member and I would never change the military. Um, well, I changed the way that they were handling military families. And, um, those of you who know me know that I was able to go to petition Capitol Hill. I was up on the Hill with about 
just under two dozen other military veteran caregivers, and we were able to help petition for um, legislation that would implement the caregiver stipend that's now nationwide. So I completely agree with you. And those people who say that you can't change anything, you can't change anything by sitting on your hands and twiddling or twiddling your thumbs or sitting on the couch, right? Um, but we can make a change. Um, you just have to start making steps to do that. Right. And I, I think it comes from action. You just kind of sit there, right? You can talk about it a lot, but unless you're willing to sacrifice and take action, nothing actually does change. And so that's my platform is I plan to take action. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the show. And could you please share your social media one more time? Yeah, actually all my, mostly it's at Stuart Schiller, but if you go to authenticamericans.com, all of my social media is tied to the bottom of my webpage. And quite honestly, there's a lot of fake accounts under my name. So if you want to see the, the true social accounts, just go to authenticamericans.com and it's at the bottom of the page tied to it. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening, be sure to share this episode with your friends, because you have to remember that when the media puts things out about people, they're just pulling a headline or they're just pulling one little thing that somebody may have said, but you can actually hear Stuart and you can follow him on his social media. Listen to him talk, right? Don't listen to what other people say about him. We all know how rumors are and how that goes. Um, so I really encourage you all just to really get to know Stuart. And remember, he's a human being. He is a father. He is a son. He's not just some, you know, uh, legend. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thank you. And thanks for everybody for listening. And until next time, um, catch me on 17 AM FM radio stations that are listed on my website, Amazon TV, Roku, and all major podcast platforms. Thank you for listening. Please head over to pattycatter.com for the latest updates on Patty, her talk show, and what she's up to. You can also find her on Amazon TV and Roku and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Patty Catter. Until next time.